You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 256 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last several episodes, we've been, as you might have guessed, setting the stage for the Battle of Chancellorsville, which took place in May 1863. But before we actually get to that major battle in Northern Virginia, we wanted to take a detour and go down to Charleston, South Carolina, to look at some big goings-on that have already happened there in 1862 and will be happening there in April of 1863. With some past members' episodes, we've already talked about some of what was going on at Charleston, but we realized that we'd be remiss if we didn't also talk about them with y'all here on the regular episodes. So, as Rich just said, before we dive into our coverage of the Battle of Chancellorsville, we're going to be taking a trip down to Charleston. Not many people realize that the longest-running single campaign of the Civil War was the Union effort against the Confederate port of Charleston, South Carolina. For three years, from the summer of 1862, when Federal troops launched their first attempt, to carve a way through Charleston's formidable ring of forts, to virtually the war's last days in 1865, Union and Confederate forces expended vast amounts of energy and resources in the struggle for control of the city with its superb harbor and maze of waterways. Much of the fighting was naval. Federal warships, including a flotilla of the menacing new Monitor-class ironclads, hurled shot and shell at the rebel shore batteries and were blasted in return by booming cannonades from huge guns mounted in the Confederate bastions. One observer said that, quote, the thunder of artillery was as familiar as the noises of passing vehicles in more fortunate cities. And in the fighting on land, federal troops were put ashore in large, risky amphibious operations that often brought the soldiers of the opposing sides face-to-face in desperate close-quarters combat. The Union attackers charged head-on at massive earthworks in mostly doomed efforts to wrestle the rebels from spits of sand whose capture might open accesses to the city and its harbor. The Confederates fought back not only with big guns, but also with every new weapon they could devise. 
from iron-proud rams to electronically detonated underwater mines to an experimental submarine. Despite the destruction and carnage, neither side would back off. Battered by repeated attacks, Charleston's defenders clung with tenacity to their forts and redoubts. And though repeatedly knocked about, the federal land and naval forces still hammered away, often at tragic cost, to gain the prize. Federal determination to capture Charleston was fueled in part by the Union's grand strategy, which would turn out to be a somewhat modified version of the so-called Anaconda Plan, formulated by old Winfield Scott, who was the general-in-chief of the Federal armies at the beginning of the Civil War. Scott's plan was to squeeze the Confederacy as if it were in the coils of a giant snake by gaining control of the Mississippi River in the West, while blockading or seizing the main rebel ports along the Atlantic coast and the Gulf of Mexico. Closing the rebel ports was an essential part of Scott's plan. The South was a largely agricultural society with few heavy industries, and so in time of war would urgently need to export huge amounts of cotton to Britain and France to support its economy and to buy in return European weapons for the Confederate armies. To choke off this trade became the U.S. Navy's overriding mission, and Charleston's busy port inevitably became a prime target. But the Federals targeted Charleston for another reason, vengeance. Here the rebellion and the war had begun, with South Carolina's secession from the Union and then the Confederate bombardment of Fort Sumter. To Northerners, the city was the hated, quote, cradle of rebellion. And so Charleston had to be taken. And if its residents suffered in the process, well, then so be it. The New York Tribune proclaimed, quote, If there is any city deserving of holocaustic infamy, it is Charleston, end quote. In short, the northern public wanted to kill secession where it began and cheered every attack that gnawed away at the despised city's defenses. For the Confederacy, holding Charleston was essential to morale. To Southerners, the city was the soul and spiritual center of the cause of Southern independence, and they were prepared to defend it to the last man. So from the outset, Charleston was destined to become a bloody battlefield and the scene of a bitter struggle. But the federal authorities realized that any quick conquest of the notorious city early on in the war was out of the question. In the Civil War's first months, the U.S. Navy was still the size of a peacetime force, with only about 40 ships in commission and some 9,000 officers and men and it was mostly powerless even to mount a blockade of any real consequence. However, by the end of 1861, the Navy had almost tripled its manpower and grown astonishingly to over 260 vessels, although many of them were merchant ships, coastal vessels, and even ferries converted into gunboats. But even this greatly expanded force was still too small for the overwhelming tasks it faced. 
there was no Confederate Navy to contend with, aside from a few gunboats and revenue cutters seized from the Federals when the war began. But the Union ships had to patrol almost 3,500 miles of southern coastline from Chesapeake Bay to the Rio Grande, a coastline notched by an infinity of rivers, lagoons, and hidden channels. The answer to this problem, according to Navy strategists, was to concentrate on seizing the major rebel ports and anchorages. This would close them up for good. Almost as important, it would give the Union Navy handy bases along the southern coast where blockading ships could resupply with coal and provisions instead of steaming back north to their bases whenever fuel, rations, and ammunition got low. The strategy approved by Secretary of Navy Gideon Wells called for focusing first on the North Carolina coast, and specifically on Pamlico and Albemarle Sounds, with their half-dozen small but busy ports. A little makeshift Federal flotilla was ready to sail in late August 1861. It included five steam-powered warships and two chartered merchantmen loaded with 900 soon-to-be seasick soldiers. From Hampton Roads, Virginia, the ships steamed down the coast. Upon their arrival, the warships, turning for the attack, pounded the two small forts guarding, guarding Hatteras Inlet, the sole gateway through North Carolina's outer banks, deep enough for ocean-going vessels. A landing party of federal troops quickly took control of the forts. Then, after some delay, the Navy dispatched a force of shallow draft vessels for a follow-up attack on Roanoke Island, which was key to control of both the wide, shallow sounds. And so, by early spring of 1862, the Federals had seized or neutralized all the area's ports, including the main ones at New Bern and Elizabeth City, causing a local North Carolina reporter to lament the fact that, quote, the whole of the eastern part of the state is now exposed to the ravages of the merciless vandals. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, farther down the coastline, the U.S. Navy struck a strategic blow in the fall of 1861. The target there was Port Royal Sound, a huge island-strewn anchorage about 60 miles south of Charleston on the South Carolina coast. Leading the attack here was Flag Officer Samuel F. DuPont, an aristocratic 59-year-old veteran officer who would later command the first big naval assault on Charleston. To take Port Royal, DuPont assembled a formidable fleet, 17 warships and 25 supply vessels, plus 25 transports, to escort and carry a force of 12,000 federal troops under Brigadier General Thomas W. Sherman. DuPont's flotilla was blown all over the sea by a ferocious storm while rounding Cape Hatteras on November 1, 1861, and two ships were sunk. But DuPont continued southward, collected his fleet, and launched his attack on November 7th. The main targets were two strongholds, Fort Walker on the tip of Hilton Head Island and Fort Beauregard on Bay Point that between them bracketed the entrance to Port Royal Sound. The combat of DuPont wasted little time. His ships entered the sound and attacked immediately, concentrating their fire on Fort Walker. The fleet's 155 guns fired at almost point-blank range. The rain of shells pulverized the Confederate works, dismounting guns and blasting apart the sand ramparts. In hours, the battered survivors of Fort Walker's garrison gave up and fled inland. They were followed that night by the occupants of Fort Beauregard, who had realized that their situation was hopeless. The officer in charge of the Federal Landing Party hoisted the U.S. flag and proclaimed proudly he was the, quote, first to take possession in the majesty of the United States of the rebel soil of South Carolina. The swift capture of Port Royal Sound gave the Union Navy a strategic anchorage for its blockaders and a base from which it could mount further attacks on rebel coastal strongholds. General Sherman's troops promptly occupied Hilton Head, and within months, Army work details had turned the place into a superb, superb supply and repair base, complete with a new long dock, a narrow-gauge railway, and warehouses packed with rations, munitions, and engineering equipment. The Navy filled the harbor with a multitude of receiving ships for use as floating barracks, warehouses, and offices as well as coaling vessels and even an elaborate floating machine shop. Engineers even built a desalinization plant to purify seawater for use in the boilers of the Navy's growing fleet of steam-powered frigates and sloops. Profoundly alarmed by the federal successes along the coast, Confederate President Jefferson Davis sent Robert E. Lee to bring some order to the Confederate defenses putting Lee in charge of the newly created Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So far in the war, Lee had earned praise for mobilizing the Old Dominion's forces for war, but victory in the field had so far eluded him, having directed an unsuccessful campaign in the mountains of western Virginia. 
dispatched by Jefferson Davis to protect the Confederacy's South Atlantic coastline, Lee first established his headquarters at a small town on the Charleston and Savannah Railroad, about 20 miles inland from Port Royal. Then, knowing the rebel shore batteries situated on outer barrier islands had proved easy pickings for the Federal Navy, he pulled the men and guns from those isolated outposts and relocated them along the rivers and creeks that led to the interior. Next, he organized a small, mobile force that could move up or down the rail line to concentrate at any threatened point. At the same time, Lee reinforced the harbor defenses of Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston. Still, Lee was deeply worried. Most of South Carolina's regiments had long since been shipped north to Virginia to face the Yankees at the front there. The troops on hand here had lost a great deal of equipment at Hilton Head, and despite receiving a small number of reinforcements, Lee knew that the Carolina coast was weakly defended. Lee wired the Confederate War Department in Richmond, saying that the Federals had, quote, complete possession of the water and inland navigation, commands all the islands on this coast, and threatens both Savannah and Charleston, end quote. The enemy's strength, Lee summed up, quote, exceeds the whole force we have in the state and could be thrown with great celerity against any point. Robert E. Lee fully realized the danger of the Confederate situation. Had the Federals landed a substantial force led by a bold general, it could have pushed ashore at any of a dozen places on Port Royal Sound, sliced through Lee's thin defenses, and marched inland almost at will, destroying rail lines and possibly besieging Charleston from the rear or landward side. But fortunately for Lee and the Confederate cause, the Federals, General Thomas Sherman, on Hilton Head, had only his small force of about 12,000 men, who were scattered on the sea islands around Port Royal and St. Helena Sounds. Although he had orders to press the rebels, Sherman was dependent on the Navy for transportation and support, and without DuPont's approval he could do little. Further demands were made on Sherman's forces by the Navy's decision to occupy Beaufort, South Carolina, and Fernandina, Florida. And then, in addition to his military obligations, Sherman's forces were ultimately responsible for more than 10,000 former slaves abandoned when their owners fled at the Federal approach. The easy capture of the big prize at Port Royal took the Federal High Command and everyone else by surprise, including General Sherman, who later confessed that, quote, we had no idea in preparing the expedition of such immense success. Unprepared and lacking the manpower to immediately follow up its quickly gained success at Port Royal, the Federal force, as one of Sherman's staff officers acidly complained, quote, did practically nothing but sit down and hold the sea islands which the Navy had captured for it, end quote. With the opportunity to gain more having slipped away, and with no other plans afoot, the Navy would use the Port Royal bases as originally intended, that is, to help tighten the blockade of the rebel ports. Then, when all was ready, DuPont and his sailors, backed up by the Army when needed, 
would settle the Norse account with the despised city of Charleston. That was the plan, anyway. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is USS Monitor, A Historic Ship Completes Its Final Voyage by John D. Broadwater. We picked up this book a while ago and were quite taken with it. We mentioned in one of our recent Year in Review episodes that the Monitor went down in a storm on the last day of 1862. Broadwater's book takes the reader on the last leg of the Monitor's journey from warship to shipwreck to National Marine Sanctuary and Museum Exhibit, told by someone who was deeply involved in the project. So that's USS Monitor, A Historic Ship Completes Its Final Voyage by John Broadwater. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in a handy list at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Marshall, Robin, Dermot, and Andrew. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time, But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.